The horizon is wide and the highway is calling. That means it's time for another episode of American Road Trip Talk. I'm your host, Gary Mance, with a welcome and an invitation to travel the byways and backroads of yesteryear, searching for America in every incomparable mile. Welcome once again, ladies and gentlemen. Glad to have you with us, as always. You know, the latest issue of American Road is out in digital and print form. And our theme, so apropos of today and of our guest, it's Wide Open Spaces, Revisiting the Wild Frontier. Great issue, lots of wonderful feedback, certainly worth a look, and maybe a subscription, American Road Magazine. Today we're going to be talking to a gentleman who is proud of Teddy Roosevelt, and with good reason, who loves his legacy on behalf of national parks, forests, and public lands, finds inspiration in him. And this gentleman, David Gessner, has written a wonderful book. It was published a month ago today as we broadcast. We've got to get into that and get his views. David Gessner is the author of 11 books that blend a love of nature, humor, memoir, and environmentalism, including Leave It As It Is. That's our book today, Leave It As It Is, A Journey Through Theodore Roosevelt's American Wilderness. He also is author of the New York Times bestselling All the Wild That Remains, Edward Abbey, Wallace Stegner, and the American West. Mr. Gessner currently serves as chair of the creative writing department at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington, where he also is the founder and editor-in-chief of the literary magazine, Echo Tone. And so we welcome for the first time to American Road, David Gessner. How are you today, David? I'm good. Thank you. Um... I'm excited to talk about this aspect of my book. You know, there's a lot going on in the book, and the road trip is kind of the spine of the book. So it's it's really exciting to me to talk about this. And extremely well written. I can see why you would be the founder and editor in chief of a literary magazine because you have quite a style all your own. Excellent book. Thank you. Very I wanted. Much. Oh, you're welcome, David. Before we get started on that, I really wanted to get your point of view here on the air, and then we're going to be edited into podcast. Form, so this is for posterity as well. There are a lot of us who grew up in the West, me among them, in California, in Nevada. I spent two decades in the Seattle area before moving to Florida. And like me, many people would like to head out West again. I would dearly love to go see the lands that I love in the Western part of the United States. There's a big problem. The whole region appears to be up in flames. Now, your book has been praised as a profound statement about our environmental future. When you're looking at all this, how could you be anything but heartbroken and astonished? Well, you know, you're a Westerner by birth, and I am another type of American, someone who grew up in the East, in, in fact, in Worcester, Massachusetts, of all places. And when I was 29, I had testicular cancer. And during that time, when I was getting radiation treatment, I got rejected by four of the graduate programs I had applied for. The fifth let me in, and it was in Boulder, Colorado. So at that point in my life, at 30, I drove west. I said in an earlier book, if John Denver had come on the radio when I saw the mountains, it wouldn't have been inappropriate. I started to cry when I saw the Rockies, and I felt reborn. I mean, you know, he was born in the summer of his 27th year, the John Denver line. Um, I, I got back in shape. I got strong again out west. And as Wallace Stegner said, the west is the geography of hope. So how awful to see that geography of hope in flames. And in fact, Wallace Stegner, the great writer um, who ended up, T. 
teaching at Stanford, was a real entryway for me into thinking big about regions and how regions are different. And as he said, the central fact of the West is aridity, dryness. And fires, particularly with beetle kill and dead trees that are there like kindling, and homes encroaching on wilderness, are just so set up right now. And uh, years ago, we predicted megafires, and sure enough, they're here. So in both the Abby Stegner book and the current book, fire plays a lead role. And it's strange to now, I find myself living in North Carolina. We have six tropical systems heading toward us out here. And my friends in the West have those orange-red skies. So what a world we're in at the moment. I mean, uh, the geography of hope is taking a little bit of a beating at the moment, unfortunately. Well, it definitely is. And we are limited as to time. But I, I did want to say, David, that when I see the orange sky in Seattle, I see the orange sky on TV because it's a national news story, obviously. There, And you look at the Golden Gate Bridge. It looks gorgeous as a photograph, but at what cost? This is a tragic kind of beauty. Yeah, yeah. Well, as I said, I'm excited about the road trip element. Actually, earlier in my career, I wrote quite a bit about Thoreau, not Roosevelt. And I remember going with my daughter to Walden Pond on a big road trip years back where I had her up on my shoulders. She was a couple of years old, and I pointed to the cabin where Thoreau had lived, and I said, that's where the man lived who ruined daddy's life. <laughs> because that, cause in high school, that's when I started to read that stuff, and it got into me. And we think of Thoreau as the, as the epitome of a homebody. But all his other books are road trips to Cape Cod, to the Maine woods, down the Concord and Merrimack. So there's this huge, my early books were about staying close to home. And my later books have all been about hitting the road. Well, you set this up perfectly, David Gessner. That is Thoreau. When it comes to Teddy Roosevelt, here is someone who, before he began the romance of his life, as he referred to it, going out west, was he projected a far, far different image, rather any feet Easterner with a high-pitched voice, not somebody who would later be seen in buckskin and hunting and acting every bit the cowboy. Exactly. Much like our current president, he was born in New York City with a silver spoon and mouth, and he um, grew up a child of privilege. But the key moment for him is when he's 24 and his wife, and mother die within one day of each other, and he's just absolutely crushed. He's got a newborn daughter who he puts into the care of his sister, and he heads out west to the Badlands to uh, become a cattle rancher. And there's a real transformation. He's already had one transformation. You know, he has built his body up after being a sickly, asthmatic kid. But now he has this other transformation where this Easterner becomes a Westerner. And at first they tease him and call him Four Eyes, but his virility and his energy and his just ability to stay in the saddle for 24 hours wins people over. And he is won over by the landscape, which rings a kind of chord inside him, a feeling that a lot of us know going to these just amazing landscapes in the West. And that thing that rings inside him will later lead him to saving 230 million acres. So it's a really fascinating story of him falling for the wilderness and then, you know, he's fallen in love with it. So what better thing to do than save it? 
and that inspired you in a mighty way, as, as well as many others, to go to the title of your book, Leave It As It Is. This is no casual phrase, as you well understand, and you explain it well in your book, David. Uh, let me quote, and fortunately we have from you, as you incorporated it into the text, a speech that he made at the Grand Canyon, and some of his Rough Rider fellow soldiers, people who risked their lives under his command, and there was that permanent bond between them, they stood there and heard him say these words. Leave it as it is, he tells the crowd. You cannot improve on it. The ages have been at work on it, and man can only mar it. What you can do is to keep it for your children, your children's children, and for all who come after you as one of the great sights which every American, if he can travel at all, should see. This was in regard to the Grand Canyon, a momentous speech for environmentalists who, in their world and from their point of view, liken it to the Gettysburg Address. Exactly. And, you know, I know that this is a road trip theme and a show, and I hate to keep hammering the theme, but that speech was given at the climax what was the first ever whistle-stop campaign tour uh, in 1903 when Roosevelt, mostly by train, traveled 14,000 miles around the country, and for the first time, a president went out to the country rather than you know sitting in the Oval or sitting at the White House. So he had already gone to Yellowstone, where he took a two-week break from campaigning to go into the backcountry with John Burroughs, and study elk and study birds. And then he arrived at the Grand Canyon, having never seen it and having written the speech, but went out that morning to watch birds and to look out over the great purple bruise of the canyon. And when he did, I'm sure he rewrote that speech because it's a completely inspiring speech that contains the phrase, we're saving it for our children and our children's children. And that connects us to the future through our blood and through place. And that was an inspiring moment. Now it's kind of a cliche. We, we've heard that before. But back then, he was not just fighting for places. He was inviting, inventing the language and even inventing the forum in which the fight was fought. So it's really fascinating. His, what, you know, very popular president. One of his top three goals was conservation. And I don't know that there's been a president other than him who can say that. It was right there at the top of his agenda. And because of him, he's handed down this gift to us in the present. And what the book is about is suggesting to us that we have to fight not just to preserve what we have, but to expand it, to connect the parks, to reinvigorate this idea of public land. Because it's an issue that both the left and right can get behind. Historically, that's been the case. After the Civil War, when the country was even more fractured than now, both sides reached out for, um, in support of public land. So it's a really exciting notion, and that's really what inspired my trip. Inspiring your trip. Well, I can tell you, David, that going driving from, uh, and it took a better part of summer, a few years ago, my partner and myself drove from east to west, and there's something that echoes your book and your road trip, which we definitely want to hear more about. I can recall yeah. getting to the Badlands. So I stopped in Wall, South I know where Wall Drug is. Now <laughs> you see all those bumper stickers. Yes, I know where that is located. And then 
We went out, uh, it's a few minutes drive from Little Wall, South Dakota, to the entrance to the Badlands National Park. And going there, I can remember having this almost overwhelming feeling that, ah, here starts the West. Exactly. There was just this feeling, now I'm in Western country, now I'm in cowboy movie country. And it was an extraordinary visit. And as we headed further West, it got better and better and better to include Yellowstone. Please tell our yeah. listeners, I'm sure they'd love to hear a lot more about what this this revelatory road trip of yours was like. Well, one of the things that had happened was I wanted to get back to Bears Ears National Monument, which was a monument that had been created under Obama and reduced under Trump. So I knew I was going to do this big trip that was going to kind of vaguely follow that Roosevelt trip of 1903. But then something happened that was really important to the book, which is I realized my nephew was graduating from college in uh, western North Carolina, and he was 21 years old. So I was like, you're coming along with me. You're going to be my, you know, my book, the butch to my Sundance or the Sundance to my butch. And, um, and we've always been very close. So that made the trip special in the sense that he's a North Carolinian who'd never really been west. So it kind of mimicked that trip I described earlier, heading from east to west. And we started by crawling up the East Coast. We went to Washington, D.C., where an old classmate of mine, Jamie Raskin, is now a congressman and let us into the halls of Congress. That was very empowering. And then we went to Harvard, where Roosevelt had gone to college, and I studied some of his writing there in the libraries. And then we started the long crawl west. And one of the funny aspects of the road trip was I was playing tapes of Roosevelt books the whole time and Roosevelt speeches. And my nephew whose idea of a hero is the Big Lebowski, the dude in the Big Lebowski. I was so sick of Teddy Roosevelt. He was becoming an expert despite himself, but he was so sick of him, and he never wanted to hear the phrase manly vigor ever again. <laughs> and, uh, so we finally, just like you described, you know, he'd endured the Midwest, and then he said it was like a roller coaster going down, and suddenly we were in this world of strange rocks and colors and... We woke up outside of our tent. Buffalo were grazing. And, you know, people say there's no wildness or wilderness left. But you get out there, and something, something happens to you, just like I said with Roosevelt. A chord is struck, you know. And it was really exhilarating not just to experience it, but to watch it in him. And then, just like you described, we kept going west, and the spaces got larger. And it is depressing. The fires are depressing in the environmental picture. But there's still one quality that the West has that it hasn't lost at all, which is space. You can go for a long, long time without other people. And if you're from the cluttered East, that's pretty exhilarating. And in Yellowstone, we did get caught in wilderness traffic jams, and we were there with millions of others. But I always say, that's the, that's the Yellowstone everybody knows. The Yellowstone people don't know is the 98% of it that's the realm of the big carnivores the big animals, you know, the bears and the mountain lions and the wolves. And so we got into the backcountry some, and we went on to Yosemite, or as it's recently been mispronounced, Yosemite, or yes. Yosemite. <laughs> and, we, um, and just to see it through his eyes, to see him get to the Pacific for the first time, you know, my Lewis and Clark of a cousin, or a nephew, rather, uh, was, was really exciting. So that was kind of the way... That, that road trip theme threaded through 
the the uh, with the other it braided with the other themes, which were was a biography of Roosevelt, and kind of a just environmental, uh, you know, anthem basically saying we've got to remember. Look, there are things that are wrong with Roosevelt. There are ways he was a bigot and a product of his time, but he gave us this rough draft, this manifesto kind of rough draft of how to save the land. And it's up to us now to revise it for our times. And so there was this, you know, but the, the core of the book was that road trip and just the exhilaration of the road trip. Um, so that was, that was a, I mean, the only one of Roosevelt's favorite words, it's not a very sophisticated word, was fun. He's the only person who said the presidency was fun <laughs> you know, wow. and the road trip was fun. So, yeah. Oh, I'm quite, and it comes through on the page. It absolutely does. David, I wanted to ask you, in regard to Teddy Roosevelt, now, something happened to him. In fact, at one point in your writing, you say, yeah. using today's vernacular, Teddy Roosevelt, there at his time, suddenly some change comes over him. Teddy Roosevelt gets it. So when he's yeah. a hunter, when he was capable of, you know, prodigious hunting exploits, there he wouldn't be uh, like the big Lebowski saying this aggression will not stand. He was pretty aggressive right. until he got a larger sense and a larger appreciation of nature. I think he was a study in contradictions, and I think he never lost that aggression. And I have hunter friends who, you know, who I think they're great appreciators of nature. But you're right. There was something that... You know, he after his wife and his daughter and his um, and his mother died, and he headed out to the Badlands. You know, it's the, there's a great biography uh, by Edmund Morris about Teddy Roosevelt, where he describes that amazing transformation that happens out there. I mean, he physically becomes like his chest becomes thicker and his arms stronger, and his his manner he has more gusto, right? Um, but it was hiding a little something, which was kind of this desperation. There was an element of exorcising his demons from the East. But then he starts going out into deeper wilderness, and he'd already been as a kid. His dream as a, as a teenager was not to be a president or a soldier. It was to be a naturalist, like his hero, Charles Darwin. And what he got in wilderness and, and what he got in studying nature and studying birds was this notion that a lot of us can't escape, kind of a deep prejudice a lot of us can't escape, of anthropocentrism, the idea that there's nothing beyond the human. And this is a guy who is the president of the United States who saw a world beyond the human world, who saw the world of birds, of plants, of trees, of fungi. And to me, that's thrilling. I mean, he, this is a guy who, in the middle of his campaign tour, goes on camping trips, and but not just camping trips. He can really see that this other world matters, that the human isn't the end of everything on Earth. Yes, and when I, was, when I was reading that part of your book, and, and again, it's Leave It As It Is, A Journey Through Theodore Roosevelt's American Wilderness. When I was reading it, there, speaking of movies, there was a scene that came to mind from Dances with Wolves. Mm -hmm. Talk about exploitation of nature, this wholesale slaughter. Kevin Costner's character there, I think he's uh, climbing a ridge and all of a sudden he has a vista. And what he sees are slaughtered bison, buffalo, slaughtered animals, these gorgeous, massive creatures. And what he sees is a field of death 
all the way to the horizon that is utterly cruel and wasteful. And he actually, I remember in the movie that, that he just came to despise white culture for its callous exploitation of nature in this way. Yeah, and that really ties into Roosevelt in several ways, uh, some good and some not so good. Uh, one is in those middle decades, uh, post-1850, you know, the, mid, the mid-19th century there, or not the mid, the three-quarter mark, you go from millions of buffalo on the plains to I think it, I think I say in the book at one point there were seven, you know, it was, I mean, or seventeen. I mean, it was some ridiculously small number, and part of that was people were being encouraged to kill buffalo to shoot them from trains, um, you know, just leave them lying there on the on the plains, in part because it was the way to get rid of another species, the indigenous people. It was this. It was a strategy, basically, since so much of their lives relied on the buffalo, as we as we know historically. You know, from everything from food to shelter to clothing, so much came from the buffalo. And Roosevelt himself was culpable in this. You know, he he believed he had an America first part of him, a manifest destiny part that that said he basically said that's unfortunate, but that's how we have to get rid of them but he had another side of him that couldn't believe that this wild place he'd come up to come out to was growing ever less wild and more civilized and tame and that the life he loved there in part because of the wild animals was ending so these things kind of sloshed up against each other in him you know kind of and and it's a really you know i think we should call him on his more bigoted and limited views but I think we should celebrate him on his more inspired views. And it's a complicated thing, and I get into that in the book. You know, I'm not a fan of the cancel culture. I'm not saying we should give people a pass. But I, I go back to the past not to judge them like an amateur St. Peter. I go back to the past to learn from them and to take what I can from their lives to make my current life better. A very wise approach, and in your case, David, a very deliberate one, perhaps methodical, because you even list the things that you wanted to do. Inspired by Theodore Roosevelt, you wanted to, in a sense, emulate him. He's unique, you're unique, but there were things about him that, that were championed and became internalized by yourself in preparation for and during this road trip. That's right. I can't remember the list exactly off the top of my head, but I know that get in some fights, drink a lot of coffee, we're on there. And, you know, really what I was, I always have a personal component of my books. And this one really focused on the fact that I'd written 10 books celebrating the natural world, but I really hadn't done a lot of activism and fighting for it. So by studying Roosevelt, it was my way of telling myself to put up or shut up, basically. Right? And, <laughs> Excellent. Um, and by the way, if the coffee, just as an aside, you know, he inspired good to the last drop. That's what he said that Maxwell House then used as their motto. And he would drink these tubs of coffee up to a gallon a day starting in the morning. So maybe that explains a little why he was so hyperkinetic. And his uh, and Edmund Morris said he would even go to sleep energetically. <laughs> he, wow. He, he, was a, he was a whirlwind. You know, he could at times he would read a book a day. Um, he'd been involved in all these physical activities. He'd, he'd worked as... You know, the president, obviously, but he'd also camp. One of my favorite stories 
is when he chases down the boat thieves. Um, he's a younger man, and he uh, he's at first out in the Badlands, and, so, and some thieves steal his boat and head up the Little Missouri. It's winter, and the river is chock full of ice, and he and his ranch hands build a boat and go chasing them. But first he grabs Anna Karenina, and he reads Tolstoy in the back of the boat in the freezing winter while they're chasing the boat thieves. Then he captures the captures the thieves and brings them to jail <laughs> so oh my goodness yeah. if he was reading a book in a day i guarantee you it wasn't war and peace i could have saved him a lot of time and trouble napoleon did it <laughs> exactly there are two things on your list that, that tie in with some praise you received from no less a personage than robert redford who said that your book is a rallying cry in the age of climate change Leave it as it is, Roosevelt's phrase. Two of the items on your list of this is what I want to do, this is how I want to be, included speaking your mind and being prepared to upset some people with your opinions. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a, actually, that's something I'm kind of working through because other heroes of mine, like Edward Abbey, the Western writer, um, you know, would make extreme statements and would be fighters the way Roosevelt is. But right now in the time we're in, and I'm naturally kind of that way, I've tempered, you know, I'm almost, I'm in my 50s, so I've tempered that. But um, but in the time we are, it seems like everybody's taking these, you know, emphatic opinions, whether on Twitter or, or whatever. So I'm a little more inclined to not go toward Teddy in that way and to kind of, like when I'm out in, on the road, I did a book about the Gulf oil spill, BP. And my hero in that book was a big conservative hunting guide. And my politics are pretty liberal. And we became great friends. And we had the land in common. That was our overlap. And we had common ground on the, on the water and land that had been despoiled by the spill. And he would tease me and call Obama my president. And, but I think that when you're out in the world and talking to people and interacting you go beyond the dichotomy of Fox and MSNBC and things like that. And, you know, you, you have a drink, you have some coffee or you have a beer with somebody and it changes it. So I'm a little, you know, I'm a little happier with, I'm not quite as ready to punch people in the mouth as Teddy was. <laughs> right. But, right. But I do like, I love his fight. I love his fight. He was committed to what he, he was committed to what he believed in. And, uh, and he also believed in this old-fashioned notion I was thinking of today, kind of out of outdated, which is called trying and effort. You know, and we, I teach in, I teach grad students, and they don't use that language. And I'm thinking oh, they might be better off if they did think in terms of trying and effort, because it matters to think that way. Because then you do. At one point in the book, when Roosevelt is lifting weights and transforming his body. Early on, I described him as an upper crust Rocky, and they should have a montage scene of him working out. <laughs> so that would kind of... work. <laughs> no, that's that's very evocative. David Gessner, I'm so thrilled for your success with this book, and it's just beginning. I wish you great success. Many, many books sold. Leave It As It Is, A Journey Through Theodore Roosevelt's American Wilderness. Excellent read. And what a great time getting to meet you on the air, David. I hope we'll have a chance to do this again. Thank you. And I get to hit the road, not to the west, but up to Cape Cod next week. So I'm psyched to get behind the wheel again, despite everything going on. Have a wonderful time, David. Thanks so much. 
And thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for tuning in to American Road Trip Talk. We remind you to visit our website, AmericanRoadMagazine.com, to preview the current issue. Until next week, dream well and drive safely on the American Road. Thank you.